Hello everybody, welcome back to the podcast. Today we have a special guest, and he is uh, John Chavez, and so he he does this project called the DMT Quest, and it is quite an interesting project. Um, I actually found out about his, uh, he had an older project that was like Q4LT, and um, I kind of liked his stuff about DMT, and I was kind of looking into some similar topics. So um, that was, I don't even know how long ago, like two years ago, maybe. But um, so now we're about to have this really interesting conversation that is going to get into um, the, uh, the role that DMT might have in... Uh, I suppose consciousness or our psychology. Hi, and welcome. This is Quirky Science, where we discuss crazy ideas. Welcome to the podcast. I am your host, Gage Clark. Why don't you uh, tell me a little bit about you and your projects, John? Yeah, sure. Well, thanks for having me on your podcast. I really appreciate it. I know we've been corresponding behind the scenes for a couple of years now, talking about, uh, I guess, the pharmacology or the neuroscience or the neurochemistry behind altered states of consciousness. And, you know, I think we're both independent researchers, just really curious about these states, uh, I actually had a, a mystical experience in 2013 that opened my eyes to the possibilities of uh, reality being a little bit different than, I guess, the way I once perceived it as, as everything being pretty fixed um, in terms of materialistically. Uh, at this point, you know, following that, that experience, I believe that there's a lot of dormant potential within humans, especially during altered state of consciousness. Uh, altered states I'm referring to anything basically outside of baseline consciousness where we seem to preside most of our time in I think that most humans are are in what we would consider baseline consciousness for maybe 95% of our waking time uh, during our waking state and then that that small 5% we're in altered states which I feel as though there's there's maybe a little bit of magic uh, during those states and you know that's the topic that I've kind of specialized in in researching, and I feel as though, you know, the DMT, endogenous DMT is a really interesting uh, facet to throw in when discussing altered states of consciousness because it is a psychedelic and it's produced within the mammalian system, the mammalian brain. And in 2019, there was a really interesting study that came out of the University of Michigan headed by Dr. John Dean, uh, showing that DMT actually seems to be playing a much more prominent role in our waking consciousness state uh, than we once believed. So, yeah, that's a, just a, a brief little overview of, of kind of what I've been looking at and 
in the future, in the very near future, we're going to be releasing a documentary about uh, the study that took place in 2019 and some of the implications regarding that study. So, yeah, let's just go ahead and dive right into whatever you want to talk about, Gage. Sure, yeah. So, you brought up this kind of baseline state, and something that I kind of feel about this is I think it might be one that is culturally programmed so so like right before the podcast I mentioned I was getting interested in synesthesia lately um, so one of the things that really fascinates me about that is that um, uh, basically uh, I saw this guy Daniel Tamet who is this synesthetic savant and he talks about using this synesthesia to perform these crazy math problems. And he memorized like 22,000 digits of pi and stuff like that. And um, the thing that was interesting, though, is in his TED talk, he shows the audience basically how to do it themselves, like certain kinds of synesthetic uh, math pr problems, I guess. And the thing that that made me kind of realize is we're really just like teaching children to memorize like basically arbitrary symbols like numbers, right? And we are kind of, I feel like a lot of people might be convinced that we've just figured it out. Like this is, this is the best system for math or something, right? But, but then um, this guy, Daniel Tamet kind of does it in such a different way that it's very visual and it's based on geometries and shapes and uh, he talks about doing math by just seeing shapes in his mind and noticing that the space between them is the answer to the like uh, arithmetic problems or whatever it is. And it's mm. it's really interesting because it's like I feel our culture we 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 kind of just assume that we've reached like peak intelligence or like peak humanity or something i don't know maybe people don't really think that but it kind of feels like it it feels like uh like there's no talk about trying to train people to become synesthetic or change the way that we do math and stuff like that um, yeah do you have any thoughts on that yeah i mean that's extremely intriguing what you're bringing up because i actually have just started reading some books regarding a savant syndrome and acquired savant syndrome where uh, people will suffer from like traumatic brain injury and <clears throat> following that injury they'll they'll basically quickly develop skills that they didn't have before and nobody knows where they came from so it appears as though there are different ways to develop abilities that are outside of the norm um, I don't know if the person that you're referring to in, in regards to I guess teaching synesthesia for math if it's something that he acquired or if it's something that he was born with but absolutely i feel like it is a societal issue in terms of our perception that everybody learns the same and that the way that we're teaching the masses to learn is the optimal way which is obviously not the case for many people um you know one of the interesting things if you look into history and guys like thomas edison you know, one of the most well-known creators of uh, the past whatever 100 150 years was that he would actually utilize altered states of consciousness and specifically hypnagogia in order to mm. acquire i guess the solution to some of his ideas or problems that he couldn't 
uh, come up with during his normal waking state. So basically, he would take uh, two heavy metal balls and lie, uh, you know, just rock back and forth in his rocking chair while focusing passively on the issue that he was having problems uh, resolving. And when he would, at the moment that he would fall asleep, he would drop the heavy balls and they would make a big thud on the ground. And in that split second, uh, a lot of times he would come up with the answer to his problems. And it's just interesting how, you know, Edison has been well known as being an inventor, a world famous inventor. But shouldn't we be studying how, you know, the methods that they utilize to come up with those inventions? I think that's something that needs to be brought up more to the forefront of concepts like creativity and inventing and coming up with new concepts. Does that make sense? Yeah, that was really fascinating. Um, so I kind of have a list of things that it's, uh, we don't necessarily have to completely follow this list, but uh, I'm going to go right into this first point. Um, so do you think you can talk a little bit about the evidence of endogenous DMT? Yeah, sure. I mean, from from everything that I've read and all the scientists that I've discussed endogenous DMT with, it seems as though there's something like 60 plus studies uh, indicating that endogenous DMT has been found throughout the human body, whether it be in, in tissue or liquid in some sort of fluid. It's not a new concept that DMT is endogenous. That's why it seems as though there were studies in the 60s and 70s uh, regarding what, what what the role exactly was. Obviously, we don't have to, we didn't have the technology back then that we do now in terms of brain imaging and um, you know tying in the entire holistic perspective of how the body works. But you know, one of the big theories back then was obviously that it it correlated with psychiatric disorders and. It seems as though a lot of the studies said, yes, it did correlate with psychiatric disorders. There was an upregulation, but there was a bunch of other studies that indicated that it had no bearing on psychiatric uh, disorders and things of that nature. So it was very, it's still kind of speculative as to what the role of endogenous DMT is. But like I mentioned in the introduction, in 2019, the University of Michigan, John Dean and Jimo Borjigan's lab, they published a study in which they did a live microdialysis on on rodents. And just to let you guys know, a lot of these rodent studies do translate to human studies. That's why they've been used to study you know, neurology, neurochemistry. Um, they showed that the endogenous DMT levels were floating around in the extracellular space of the brain at levels comparable to dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. You know, these are very commonly studied neurotransmitters that we feel as though we have a pretty uh, good understanding of their roles in our in in perception and in our everyday waking consciousness and our circadian rhythms and all that. So the fact that DMT was found at similar levels to those three neurotransmitters uh, during the normal waking state of a of a mammalian live mammal indicates that most likely DMT has a very prominent role in having some sort of effect, maybe not just on perception and visual perception, but maybe emotion and cellular function and just uh, our overall state of being. I think that that study that they did at Michigan really changed the whole conversation regarding endogenous DMT because for the longest time, it was always thought that endogenous DMT maybe only got released during near-death experiences 
or during our dream state. But this study alludes to the fact that it's actually modulating our normal everyday waking consciousness, including right now that we're talking, and that these levels are, are high enough to have some sort of effect on us. Interesting. So you mentioned that uh, something that has kind of bothered me a little bit is that so that whole idea that it's correlated to mental illness i think it's possible that maybe there are there exists maybe some people who have enough that it's somehow considered problematic but in terms of things like the usual argument would be that it's like related to like schizophrenia or something like that and so i'm actually kind of working on some projects right now with uh, another with uh, like a PhD student at uh, the University of Alabama Birmingham about um, kind of t like basically we're trying to I guess distangle uh, psychedelia and schizophrenia because I think that they are not uh, necessarily the same thing or we I should say we think that it's not necessarily the same thing and it's interesting like how you mentioned that there's these studies that show that it's isn't related to um, mental health problems and uh, there's also studies that looked at the receptors like the 5-HT2A receptor and um, they've even found like there was a meta-analysis that I saw that found unmedicated schizophrenics are having decreased binding of this receptor which is like basically the opposite of what people are ex expecting and i've heard mm. some people argue that like in the especially in the old days i don't know about i don't really hear this as much anymore but i used to hear that people would say like oh it's because they're down regulating the function of it with too much activity or something and uh like another thing with that though that kind of presents a problem is there's these really old studies i don't know if you've seen them but they talk about uh, they basically inject uh dmt and lsd and maybe psilocybin i can't remember if they do that but uh they inject these psychedelics into people with schizophrenia and healthy controls and the healthy controls actually get more visual effects and the schizophrenics needed higher doses to get effects from these psychedelic drugs and it's just kind of weird like that i don't know like so i kind of well i think it could probably go in either direction like there could be like a subset of people that are more sensitive to it and that we're labeling those people schizophrenic because they don't seem to align with what is considered normal in whatever domain like if the person experiences like different visual auras or something like that maybe they go to the doctor and bring it up and then they're like well you're schizophrenic or like something like that or um in terms of like uh the decreased sensitivity i kind of feel that the one of the mechanisms or roles that dmt or potentially even just serotonin has is to basically like change a lot of different things about our mind uh one of them being 
uh, the tendency to recover from like stress or to change our behavior after we've been like say conditioned by stress like so normally let's say you become super stressed out and you develop some behavioral reaction like say it was uh say something dangerous happened or something like that i don't know or that you are being bullied or exploited or something's happening and you're stressed i feel that you your serotonin or whatever maybe dmt as well might decrease because of uh um i'm trying to think how to simplify this without going like on too long <laughs> but I, I think basically that one of one of the functions i would say is to make you per, perhaps more socially submissive um so that you're not confrontational and that you also might develop more like repetitious behavior which might have like some function in like social hierarchies where uh, people have like argued that serotonin is high in leadership positions and stuff like this so you could imagine that the leader position is supposed to have the ability to flexibly change their behavior and not be confined to like as many behavioral scripts but then the subordinate people might uh, have decreased serotonin or DMT even that makes them more confined to uh, repetitious behavior and potentially like maybe following orders and not challenging authority and um, maybe other things like that or I don't know I'm kind of rambling a little bit right there but um, I think I missed the main thing that I that I meant to get into there but what do you think about this stuff have you have you like uh, no it's it, it's intriguing I mean the first point that you, you brought up was that there doesn't you, the one that you're working on with the PhD candidate from I believe it was a Birmingham uh, that you guys were referring to the fact that it's not the same schizophrenia and psychedelic experiences and I agree with you I feel as though uh, it, I think it's really tricky when you come up with a schizophrenia diagnosis, especially if you're not using some sort of in-depth neural imaging. This is just my personal opinion. I'm, I'm not a I'm not a neuroscientist, but you know, from all the literature I've read regarding schizophrenia, it seems as though it correlates with like things like chronic neural inflammation. So basically, you're having some anatomical changes to the brain, which alters your perception. And the fact that a DMT seems to be neuroprotective, cellular protective, anti-inflammatory, and antioxidant, um, I don't know how you can, I guess, come to grips with that conversation about, wait, is DMT, if DMT is an antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, and it's upregulated, and it's causing schizophrenia, then why would there be a consistency of neural inflammation in the brain across schizophrenia. Yeah. So I, I almost feel as though much like if someone were, to, someone were to get a cut on their arm and there's an autonomic process with which it heals, uh, I get the same feeling about things like neural inflammation and neural lesions in which not just uh, DMT but probably melatonin, even serotonin, uh, there's alterations, fluctuations in order to autonomically, I guess, heal those aspects of the brain. 
and sometimes in the healing process there's an overshoot uh, in order to I guess uh, induce that healing mechanism and that might you know D- an over a slight overshoot of DMT in terms of healing neural inflammation or neural lesions uh, might be a byproduct you know but it's not the cause of things like schizophrenia that that's just this is just my my personal opinion that DMT is not the cause of schizophrenia it is a byproduct of uh, the brain healing itself just like the body heals itself constantly the brain heals itself as well that is an interesting and, point yeah and in regards to the second aspect that you were bringing up in regards to I guess uh, the subordinates and the leaders having altered levels of I guess DMT or serotonin um, I think that you you probably be on to something in terms of I mean listen when you're when you're creating your your neurochemistry is in in an altered state you're it's a it's a sort of expansion taking place and as a subordinate you know that you just take orders and you follow directions and you do as you're told you're obviously not in that same space as a creator so I believe that yeah your neurochemistry would probably be altered in a different way maybe less molecules less neurochemistry correlated with greater creativity and we know the effects of, of DMT from a microdosing level to a mid dosing level to a high dosing level and it seems as though it stimulates some sort of creative aspects of ourselves so yeah I, I can see some of those things that you're talking about for sure so uh, the next thing I'm curious about is what do you think um, what do you think that DMT I guess does or what do you think the role it might play uh, for uh, humans I guess or even just animals and humans or whatever hmm that that's a really good question because <clears throat> well we have to take a look at the varying dosages and the varying effects that we've seen from those dosages. I mean, obviously, we can go back to Rick Strassman's book, The Spirit Molecule, and then the low dose, the subpsychedelic dose, it induced euphoria. Um, at the mid-level doses, there was some euphoria and some visionary experiences, and at the highest level, you know, people had connection with beings and the divine and the Godhead or whatever you want to call it. So, I mean, this is just from an exogenous source that we're discussing right now. But from an endogenous source, based on the information from the University of Michigan in 2019, it seems as though there is a role for DMT all the time within ourselves. Uh, I, I speculate that much like melatonin and serotonin, DMT is not just found in the brain or the nervous system, but it's probably going to be found throughout the gut as well. So to pinpoint exactly, you know, what that molecule does for one specific thing, I, I think that uh, that's taken too much of a reductionist approach. Yeah. And I feel as though it's probably, it has a systemic role in the cellular protective aspect, um, probably modulating our emotions in some subtle manner alongside a host of other neurochemicals yeah. you know this is just to be fair right because like i yes I, I did create a project named dmt quest and there is a focus on the research of this specific molecule but at the same time you know i'm not completely ignorant to the complexity and the neurochemistry that changes 
um, you know, just to even take it a step further is that, you know, when Rick Strassman did the study of injecting people with exogenous DMT, it caused a huge fluctuation in basically every other chemical that he measured. And, and he measured this in the plasma, not even in the brain. So if there's going to be a huge fluctuation in the plasma from an exogenous DMT, then you're going to see an even greater fluctuation in the brain, indicating that these chemicals don't act singularly. There's a cascade effect. It's almost like an equalizer uh, for, for sound, you know, where you have some channels yeah. going up, some channels going down. and But in the end, you know, they all lead to the endpoint experience. Does that make sense? Yeah, I really like the point about the equalizer because it's like... Uh, for those who've never used it, it's basically like you'll have just uh, like a bunch of sliders or something like that, right? And uh, you'll have like, say, 10 sliders, and each of them corresponds to a different range of frequencies that uh, you can like change uh, and like kind of change how, the, how something sounds so that it's... Uh, and you can get all kinds of different configurations, right? So it's like... You can imagine like dopamine and norepinephrine and uh, GABA, glutamate, all these things are different sliders on the brain equalizer or something like that. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And I feel that's why the complexity is immense. Um, and that's not even to take into account the fact that 5-MeO-DMT is also endogenous, right? So you have that conversation in the mix. You have endogenous monoamine oxidase inhibitors like trivulin. Even acetylcholine, the first neurotransmitter discovered, has monamine oxidase inhibitory properties. So it's a very complex soup that's taken place within the brain. And I feel as though there needs to be a lot more research, especially in that whole endowasca system. And that includes dynorphin. I mean, that's not to, to state that it's only the DMTs and the MAOIs in, in the brain that need to be studied, but the whole interplay with things like dynorphin. Or even that, that obscure chemical that Hamilton Morris mentioned on the Joe Rogan podcast a couple of years ago, alpha endopsychosin, he was indicating that it Whoa. might be like an, endo an endogenous PCP or something like that. So, you know, the complexity, I feel as though the deeper we go into various rabbit holes of neurochemistry, it's only going to continue to grow. Yeah, totally. Um, so the, with dynorphin, it's kind of... Interesting. So one of the puzzles that I've been really, uh, really wanting answers to is, um, so in the past, those of you who've read my content, I basically kind of argued that I think serotonin and psychedelics are very anti-dynorphin based on like uh, certain studies, like some of them even... Uh, were with LSD suppressing certain uh, behavioral changes induced by uh, dynorphin-like drugs. But the thing now that I'm starting to wonder, like basically I found out that migraine auras, they seem to be... So in the past I basically thought that it is glutamate being overstimulated um, and too much like excitatory effects, but now I found this study where they basically argued that dynorphin is what is causing uh, different like visual auras during 
probably both migraines and seizures, which the reason that's kind of weird is that um, basically the, the, I, I should say first is what it seems like happens when dynorphin comes into play with a lot of different things is that if you overstimulate, it seems to be dopamine or glutamate on certain receptors, then dynorphin increases and uh, presumably to like it basically antagonizes both of those mechanisms that stimulate the dynorphin release. So it's presumably some kind of uh, suppressant effect on whatever's being overstimulated. And so in the case of something like seizures or migraines, I used to think that it was the overstimulation and now I'm starting to think, well, it could be both, but it could, but I'm basically now thinking the overstimulation induces suppressant effects that basically cause all these like problems, like basically dissociating on a small scale that's producing like weird gaps in vision or weird other problems that arise and um um the thing with psychedelics and serotonin is that the evidence right now is basically that the 5-HT1A receptor seems to suppress dynorphin so there's that it suppresses the dynorphin release induced by dopamine overstimulations particularly i'm not sure about by other mechanisms uh, but that would have like implication for like stimulants and stimulant psychosis probably um and uh but then when we go to like the 5-ht2a receptor and the 5-ht2c receptor uh dynorphin mrna actually is co-localized in certain neurons that are dense with those two receptor types and it was something like uh, the 5-HT2A receptors had like the least dynorphin out of all all of them studied. Um, and then the 2C receptor, though, had uh, the greatest amount. And it's interesting because 2C seems to induce like many of the same effects that dynorphin does. So I'm going like maybe really, I don't know if I should get super deep into the chemistry because I don't know how many people... Uh, listen to that part but um but if you're following along basically though uh it seems like 2a and 2c receptors which are huge parts of the psychedelic effects so supposedly at least what we've what a lot of researchers have been saying so far um they seem to co-localize with dynorphin at like different rates and then there's also uh, the D2 dopamine receptor, which has been implicated in like schizophrenia, and I found out recently that the 5-HT2A receptor actually seems to potentiate D2 receptor activity. And so now I'm kind of just like, I don't even know anymore because, well, well, I forgot to mention the D2 receptor, particularly uh, if you remove that receptor, uh, the dynorphin release due to overstimulation of dopamine uh it's a overstimulation of the d1 specifically uh it just doesn't happen anymore so it's like uh 
I don't know, like, and now I'm thinking maybe what if psychedelics are actually dynorphinergic drugs and maybe the benefits come from, uh, well, I don't know. I think it's like way too complicated. Like probably maybe some of the mechanism mechanisms are opposite and some of them go the other yeah. way. Yeah. I mean, like there's always thresholds, right? Like I've seen that where <clears throat> like a certain amount of a compound will will cause an effect and that at a higher dose it won't cause an effect and that at a much higher dose it'll cause a different effect so there's there's a complex dance that's going on for sure within our system pretty much all the time <laughs> yeah so that, that makes these these conversations like really complex and really difficult to decipher and uh i don't i mean i i think that there's something to offer having these conversations but to really be able to pinpoint uh, certain specific chemicals as having certain specific functions that gets really kind of tricky just just from my perspective just looking at you know even the psychedelics right i mean what are we talking about you, you mentioned the 5-HT2A receptor as being the the prominent one known as creating these sort of experiences anecdotally i believe that once again hamilton morris has stated that he's known people that have taken cantancerin that's a 5-HT2A receptor uh, antagonists, I believe, and uh, usually when they give people that and they give them LSD or psilocybin, people pretty much have no effect. But mm. when they've given catanserin to people and then have them smoke DMT, there's there's a full blown effect. So basically, like oh, the really? catanserin does nothing. So you, well, once again, this is an anecdotal claim from Hamilton Morris, but at the same time, it's something worth considering that we need to do much more research on because. If DMT is acting upon or creating an effect outside of the traditional methods of psychedelic experience, then the complexity is obviously much greater than once believed. So, yeah, just putting that out there. Yeah, totally. I agree. Uh, every time I, I convince myself that I'm almost there or something like that when I'm in the, like, rush of researching and, like trying to go down these rabbit holes and then later it's just like whoops i guess i guess <laughs> something contradicted all of that stuff <laughs> so yeah um, well you know you're 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 a good scientist for even mentioning that because a lot of other people that are in this field would just go ahead and act like those studies don't exist to keep their theories alive you know <laughs> yeah seriously i actually have been uh kind of networking with certain scientists and I don't know, like, I've had some interactions that kind of spooked me, but it's, like, weird because the level of confidence in those people also led me to uh, doubt myself kind of a lot. And, but the interesting thing is, like, I asked the person to have a conversation about these topics, and, like, so far there's no response, and I, like, after the fact, I started to wonder if the reason that this guy felt really intimidating when I was talking to him is maybe he was actually defensive or something because of uh yeah he wants something to be true I don't know <laughs> yeah no hey that that happens absolutely and I've come across that and I've read your stuff and I feel like it's very solid so I think you have a good mind you have a good sort of uh smell for this sort of research so I would not be discouraged at all I would keep at it and I think that when you ask questions that might offend some people, 
in a certain way, I think that's that might be a good thing. That means you're asking the right questions. And if somebody gets offended, maybe it's because they are getting a little bit defensive on it or they don't have the answer right off the top of their head. And, you know, if you're considered an expert in the field, then, you know, they feel like they should. But, you know, I don't know exactly who you've been talking to, but I've read some of your stuff and I think it's very solid. Oh, I won't name any names. I feel like that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we don't need to do that. Um, but, uh, so I'm curious, let's see, um, I'm trying to think what we, we should, uh, maybe, so there's this puzzle. I noticed in one of your videos that, and it, and it was kind of a short video, so it didn't actually, it, it seemed to be more like a, possibly an advertisement for the topic, but, um, it was on the topic of DMT in the lungs and something that that puzzle got me thinking about is that um so I, I kind of a while back I learned something that I, it was kind of shocking that it, it wasn't apparent at first just based on I guess the names of the chemical but uh basically monoamine oxidase that that plays the role of breaking down uh, monoamines like serotonin, dopamine, and basically DMT as well, um, that you actually need the presence of oxygen for that to function. Uh, so it's like, it makes sense now when I think monoamine oxidase, right? <laughs> but I didn't actually, like, I never even would have thought about that and it's kind of crazy because it kind of has implications for uh like holotropic breathwork uh kind of uh like the wim hof method um mm -hmm. and maybe this puzzle with supposedly dmt in the lungs i noticed that on the video though you it seemed like you were saying or something on it said uh the myth about it or something or like something about it that you had like I think some kind of skepticism, or wh what do you think about it though? Well, the whole concept of DMT being produced in the lungs was based on the enzyme INMT, which is a precursor enzyme to DMT synthesis from tryptophan. So that's where it came from. Not because they found massive amounts of DMT in the lungs, but because mm. they found massive amounts of the precursor. So I mean that's the way a lot of the way science works is hypothesis based on precursors and the 2019 study out of Michigan they found not only INMT throughout the brain which hadn't been found before definitively because the technology wasn't there at the time oh, okay. but John, John Dean put the work in and he found massive amounts of INMT in the brain not only INMT but also um, another precursor enzyme named AADC and those actually were co-localized within the same cells throughout the brain. And you need those two enzymes to synthesize DMT. So basically, the notion of the lungs synthesizing DMT was always a theory based on INMT. But now that they found that INMT and AADC are both found in the same cells throughout the brain, throughout the pineal gland, throughout the choroid plexus, throughout the cerebral cortex as well as finding the DMT itself throughout the brain in the extracellular fluid alongside serotonin, dopamine, norepinephrine, uh, it indicates that the whole lung aspect of 
Because basically, if you're talking about lung-based DMT going up to the brain, you're talking about it going up the carotid uh, artery, uh, up into the bloodstream, into the brain that way. But it doesn't really, to me, based on just everything I've, I've studied in terms of the mechanisms of altered state, it never really made a whole lot of sense. Um, what I feel like makes more sense in terms of producing endogenous DMT at a greater level from breath, things like breath work is based on the circulation of cerebral spinal fluid that is modulated by respiration and the fact that uh, INMT and AADC, the enzymes needed to synthesize DMT, were in heavy concentrations at the choroid plexus. That's the predominant part of the brain where cerebral spinal fluid is, act is actually synthesized itself. So that's where I feel as though the breathwork aspect of, of uh, altered states and upregulation of DMT comes from, not necessarily from lung, bloodstream to the brain. Does that make sense? Yeah, okay, yeah. So I was thinking that in terms of DMT in the lungs, I wasn't necessarily thinking that it would be psychoactive but i was thinking maybe something about the fact that that is where all the the oxygen presumably is most concentrated as far as i know but um but anyway so what do you think about um have you tried holotropic breathing or wim hof and all that uh, stuff i've tried wim hof not to like an extended like 45 minutes an hour even though i plan to in the near future but I've, I've done about 20 minutes and definitely puts you in a not so much for me a visually altered state because even exogenous dmt doesn't put me in a visually altered state all that well but somatically physically i definitely feel overlap between uh, uh ingested dmt and 20 minutes of wim hof breath work just somatically, I'm very, uh, you know, uh, very sensory in, in that sense, not visually, but yeah. Yeah. Hmm. yeah, I tried it probably for about 20 minutes as well, and um, it was kind of a while ago, so I don't remember everything, but it did get maybe a little bit unnerving, maybe, or something like that. It mm -hmm. got kind of stimulating and... Um, I don't know, it was kind of interesting. Like, I could tell if I probably kept going, it could get probably weird. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean, um, the other aspect that I wanted to, I guess, mention on a, just a quick tidbit was the whole hydroxyl radical formation. And I'm presuming that that's upregulated, like, from things like hypoxia, which could be stimulated by... Uh, I guess, uh, hyperventilation or things of that nature. And I think I shared that study with you where there is like a linear increase between uh, like hydroxyl radical formation and glutamate. And they're all correlated with uh, um, increased monamine oxidase inhibitory activity. So that could play a role too. Maybe it's not so much that the DMT itself is upregulated, but... The fact that monamine oxidase inhibitory activity is heavily upregulated, something like 70 to 80 percent. So that within itself indicates that, you know, you're going to have increase in not just DMT, but, you know, maybe all the monamine neurotransmitters as well, you know, leading to the effects. Yeah, interesting. Hmm. 
So, um, do you think that I've saw, I've seen that you mentioned lucid dreaming. So what do you think about lucid dreaming? I think it's a fascinating field of research and discovery. Um, I think that dreaming isn't just neurochemical processes taking place. I feel like consciousness is a very complicated topic to wrap your head around, per se. Yeah. Um, I have a feeling that our dream state is actually our consciousness maybe going to a parallel sort of reality in a, in a weird sort of way. I don't know how it all works out. I don't know how it, how it, I can't explain how parallel universes work or anything of that nature at all. But I get the notion that there, it's more complicated than just what's going on in the brain. I feel like our consciousness can expand outside of the body and we're having experiences wherever they are. And, you know, some of the more interesting things about lucid dreaming that I've heard of is that, you know, people can go ahead and sometimes dream about an issue that ends up actually fixing some of their waking life issues or offering solutions or even healing their own bodies in a lucid dream and it affects their physical body. Uh, or even the benefits of the psychedelic experience based on quieting the default mode network and creating other connectivity throughout the brain. And in a regular dream state, that doesn't take place. But in a lucid dream state, that seems to take place. So, you know, these are all fascinating concepts of being very functional. And I feel like that's where lucid dreaming is the most intriguing for me is the functionality of it. You know, not just being lucid in a dream, but also finding ways in which it can help us in our waking consciousness in our everyday lives. Interesting, yeah. Yeah, I bet being conscious or uh, kind of maybe, uh, I don't know, what self-aware or something in a dream and uh, trying to actively pursue some kind of goal or solve some kind of puzzle... That seems kind of that's a that's sounds like kind of like the uh, the whole thing you mentioned with hypnagogia and uh, like Edison and stuff. Exactly. I mean, you're already in the altered state, so now you've just found a way to maintain some sort of uh, stability to navigate it, and then you could do with it as you will, which is you know something that I definitely want to get into practicing and and trying to induce because I feel as though it's. It's just a not understood aspect of the human experience. Just dreams are not... We think that we can pinpoint it because we've created a term for it, but I feel like it's much more complex. So, do you have... Uh, do you have any interesting stories about uh, trying DMT or even just maybe any psychedelic or whatever you think is one of the more interesting experiences that you've had? Um, I would say probably the most interesting experience that I've had was based on a naturally induced, I guess, a quote-unquote awakening process in which I began to realize that uh, during a distinctly altered state of consciousness, your visualizations could have effect on reality, definitely an effect on your own physiology. Um I think that, you know, for anybody who wants to know 
a little bit more in depth about the experience that I had, you can go ahead and go on YouTube and look up uh, Dr. Edith Ubuntu Chan D and just type in DMT and I'll come up and then you could hear my whole, I guess, the details of the whole experience and whatnot. But that, that was the most profound thing that I've experienced is, I, you know, in scientific terms, it would be labeled as having conscious control of your autonomic signaling. So autonomic signaling is, you know, things that keep your heartbeat going, uh, just uh, things that are considered autonomic, things that take place naturally without you having to focus on, like your digestion, you know, creating enzymes in your pancreas. These things all take place without you having to signal that. But when you're in an altered state of consciousness and say you want to visualize your hand getting warm, for whatever reason, it seems as though your hand can get warm when you're in an altered state of consciousness and you visualize these things. So it's almost like you willfully hallucinate something to affect your physiology. And you can do that. You can make your hand hot. You can make your hand cold. And the interesting thing that I realized after my experience was that there's actually a lot of data about all this, these sort of abilities uh, during altered states. These things have been studied for decades, especially with biofeedback. I think that was really popular in the 80s and things of that nature. So these aren't new concepts. These are just, it was a concept that was new to me based on an experience. And then, you know, going down the rabbit hole of Wim Hof and, you know, him putting that autonomic control on the big stage just made me realize that there's probably we're probably at a precipice of finding out some more uh, dormant abilities uh, that humans have within us during altered states of consciousness. And, you know, just I'm just intrigued by the fact that most of the altered states of consciousness have so much overlap in terms of the endpoint brain activity, whether it be breath work, hypnosis, meditation, you know, alm chanting, binaural beats, different sounds, or even a combination of all of them. Uh, they all, they're not all the same, but they all induce, you know, similar sort of brain activity. And for whatever reason, that brain activity seems to correlate with uh, different, uh, different abilities that we can tap into. That's interesting. It reminds me of something I saw, which I don't know how true it was, but something I saw about uh, people kind of training themselves to control their body heat and stuff like that. Um, but it was kind of to an extreme degree, I think, the thing that I saw. Um, but it's kind of interesting. Like, I, I wonder if... Hmm, I wonder why... Like, why either, like, I wonder if it would be crazy to think, this This is probably not the case, I'm guessing, but if infants or something had autonomic control over things and that, like, a huge part of their growing might be actually trying to train their system to be however uh, feels comfortable, maybe, or... Uh, Something like that. I don't know. Yeah, I, I'm not entirely like quite sure what you're referring to, but I get the gist of it, and I, I kind of feel like you're onto something intuitively. 
But yeah, you know, the but the most profound thing that I found was that, listen, your visualizations can affect your physiology, but at the same time, when you are in a deeply altered state and your visual visualizations are extremely vivid for whatever reason, they seem to be able to affect outside of your physical body as well. And that that's what I've experienced and that's why I bring up concepts like telepathy and, and things of that nature because... I never thought any of this stuff was real or it existed, but you know, ever since I've had certain experiences and I started writing about them, I've gotten hundreds of emails of you know engineers in Silicon Valley, scientists who have done you know psychedelics with their friends, and they all claim that they could have sworn that there was you know crystal clear telepathic transference of ideas and information taking place during the psychedelic state, and they've always had questions about you know the mechanism for which with they transpire and whatnot so yes i've had experience with very strange occurrences that you know been trying to reverse engineer the mechanisms of in order to better explain them mechanistically to the public but it's still uh it's still up in the air it's still really difficult to truly understand the mechanisms of it all but it you know it doesn't mean that they don't happen. It just means we're not there mechanistically yet to better understand them. Yeah. So, so I'm curious to go down this um, path here with uh, telepathy. Uh, before that, I will say I am kind of skeptical about this topic, but at the same time, I had a period where uh, basically I had certain experiences that I felt were like telepathy in the moment and um but um yeah and it was with cannabis actually and uh, basically I felt that there was this kind of this certain switch that changed the way that I kind of uh, process social things, uh, but it, it's something that I feel. Um, it almost seemed as if like I had my guard up, and that everybody goes around with their guard up, and that when I let my guard down, that that also made it so I can kind of see into what other people's more um, unspoken thoughts are, I would say. Mm -hmm. Like, I wasn't necessarily hearing words that other people are thinking or something like that, but it was more, it felt almost like I could maybe reverse engineer, I guess, kind of what people are thinking and I was uh, like for example someone would be saying something and it felt much easier to know that they are uh, lying about that or that they actually mean something different or that like while they say something um, their body seems to suggest something that is completely just opposite like I can tell that they're trying to hide these thoughts <laughs> and um it it's 
and again it was it was very vague though like it was mostly not very specific things but i could really feel how people were um thinking about like if i said something or did something they might say that um Um, well, in particular, I'll just like say what specifically kind of happened. Basically, this person, I felt that they were ruminating on something that I said, but they didn't seem to believe that that were the, was the case. And uh, But it was kind of clear from my perspective because of, well, it was almost like the way that I was acting was completely in a totally different mode of uh, being besides being controlled by my usual emotions or by culture and stuff like this and because of that i think that that sort of freedom um led to uh kind of exposing what the other person was doing that was because of either culture or because of uh their emotions or whatever like for example i would I would feel almost nothing maybe if I talked about something in some topic that was controversial or emotional, let's say, and then I move on from that topic because I suddenly lose the interest, but the other person uh, keeps going back to that topic, and I notice that normally both people, me and the other person, would normally just kind of fall within the scripts and kind of... Uh, I would go along with them ruminating and they would go along with me, but because I, my interests became separate, uh, it was kind of revealing a lot about what that person felt about everything that I say, kind of, if that makes sense. I mean, that was like really rambly and uh, I still don't fully understand or even know if I should call it telepathy, but it felt like something like it. But uh, have you that's, experienced that's that? That's intriguing. Um, the only thing that I can talk about telepathy from my experience is that it's been very much uh, clear and cut. It hasn't. There's no room for for guessing per se. But just to give people a little history of the whole like the conversation regarding telepathy, you know, the EEG device was was uh, devised to study telepathy by Hans Berger in the 1920s. You know, he had a telepathic experience mm -hmm. with his sister who was many miles away. I, I think he had a near-death experience. And <clears throat> uh, ever since that moment, he wanted to develop an objective, measurable equipment that could somehow encapsulate telepathic transference. But he never, uh, he wasn't able to get it done uh, in the 20s. I, I happen to believe it's because he didn't have the digital equipment to measure... Uh, faster oscillations that might seem to correlate with, uh, I guess, synchronization between two brains having telepathy. But that's just a little backstory. And then there's the whole backstory of uh, the compound in ayahuasca that is known as harmine or amonamine oxidase inhibitor. And it was actually called telepathy because people would have, you know, regular experiences of seeming to have telepathic uh, communication with other people in the ayahuasca circle. But I believe that name got changed because it, it, uh, there was a researcher in Europe who was more prominent and he used the term harming rather than telepathy. But anyhow, 
in terms of my experience with telepathy, let me. It goes back to having autonomic uh, influence over your body, being able to warm your right hand up, or warm your left hand up, or cool your left foot, or cool your right hand. So your visualizations extend to those extremities in your body. But if you just for a second put your body, I guess, to the side and just ex- imagine yourself. Uh, extending that visualization into somebody else's body uh, during your altered state of consciousness during vivid visual imagery uh, your visualization can actually affect the body of another person so that within itself um, is it falls in line with other concepts like qigong or reiki healing or theta healing or therapeutic touch or, or what what have you in terms of the different modalities of proclaim healers that use energy healing or things of that nature so that's lays like the foundation for my sort of experience with telepathy where you know following my uh, whatever quote-unquote awakening uh, I stumbled upon having conscious influence over my autonomic nervous system at the time I didn't really feel cold even when, when it was out freezing outside but that extended to me just playing around with that and and just seeing if visualizations can extend past the physical body. And I couldn't tell you why I even had that, that notion to even try because I had never even read about you know healing or anything of that nature. I was pretty much a staunch materialist at the time. But when I had that experience, then you know, I just started playing with it. And I, I had an experience where my girlfriend at the time you know, the same sort of visual imagery that I use to go ahead and influence the temperature of my extremities, I visualize uh, extending past myself and going into her body, and uh, she definitely felt it, and I saw the reaction, and it was it was real. And so at that point, when I saw that initial reaction from a visualization extending past my physical body into hers and having a physical sensation in her, I just got the intuition, the notion that, wait, if if some sort of transference, I don't know what it is, whether it's magnetic, electromagnetic, or, or some other force, can extend past your physical body based on intent during an altered state, then maybe the possibility lies that... Uh, telepathy somehow exists within that realm within those mechanisms so at that point I just decided to just try for whatever reason I just decided you know I'm gonna go ahead and send you a a visual image of an object I think it was like an apple or whatever and uh, you know when I just maintained the visualization of connection brain to brain and vividly let me emphasize vividly as vividly as possible you can imagine the image going from your mind to her mind uh and it worked and it worked like four or five times in a row and it wasn't like you know i'm gonna choose an apple or an orange it was like i'm gonna just uh pick whatever i want to and i'm gonna go ahead and visualize it going into your head and just i want you to go ahead and just blurt out loud what comes to your mind and it worked on a consistent basis during that time and 
it didn't work just with her it worked with other people as well and everybody was pretty shocked and you know the interesting thing about that whole experience and the whole replication of it is that there was a physicality behind it meaning that if the visualization was strong enough to induce uh, clear-cut telepathy what usually would happen is that the receiver meaning not me I'm the sender I was the visualizer but the receiver would go into rapid eye movement so basically their eyes would be closed but similarly in like a dream state their eyes would be twitching back and forth rather quickly so there was like a, a physical sort of um, like a biomarker of sorts that something was taking place in the receiver to make them open to information transference and that's really what intrigued me was that it wasn't something based on luck like I could feel it within my own physical brain when transference was strong and, and taking place and then there was a physical observation that could be made in the in the receiver even with the naked eye that they were put in an altered state uh, during those moments as well so yeah that's just that's been my experience with that whole concept I have an idea that could tie into some of this in an interesting way um, but I will I, I have to do this just because I am a wimp no I'm just kidding but uh, I am still skeptical and uh, but I'm mostly just doing that so that I don't get persecuted by other people, right? <laughs> but, um, but yeah, so it'd be interesting if something like serotonin or serotonin receptors are involved in this kind of thing, because in other species, like ants and uh, different, uh, different insects, the, the serotonin system actually triggers uh, hive behavior like uh, collective behavior and um, there is even like stuff in humans where they talk about how it increases sociality and pro-social behavior or empathy or um, there's even studies like having increased of certain serotonin receptors is linked to um, more perspective taking and so it would be kind of interesting if if actually a, maybe a lot of species that are social maybe they do have the ability to reach these like really peak uh, shared cognition states uh, but that just maybe with humans people have become so guided by what they believe about reality like they believe that that's not possible and um, maybe that is kind of just canceling it out of our experience but also i think another factor is it could be the way that society is set up in such a way that um that it is kind of very anti-social in a lot of ways now that yeah. um it's kind of we've maybe lost a kind of communal sense in our society today sadly um that maybe we are kind of uh, depriving ourselves of something that might have actually been normal and maybe it doesn't even have to be strange or like supernatural. It could be something that 
uh, is perhaps like a normal social mechanism. Like, uh, and interestingly, though, I feel language is something that would kind of fit the kind of super technical definition of what telepathy means, right? Which would be like communicating at a distance or something like that. Uh, but that's, of course, not what people mean by it. But uh, yeah. it's kind of interesting because language is a is a thing that we do that is very much like uh, beaming thoughts to other people using sound waves or something. Um, yeah. yeah. What I if, mean... What if we are losing our... I mean, I'll, I'll just end it right here, end that point right there, and not ramble too much, but uh, but what if we're losing our... What if other species are more telepathic instead of having language or something like that? Yeah, no, that, that's a great point. You know, just the fact of, let's say you just stare into somebody's eyes for an extended period of time, you know, that makes most people extremely uncomfortable. But when you do that, I mean, at least based on the EEG studies that I've come across, the brain, two brains tend to synchronize. Same thing when you shake somebody's hand and look them in the eye, your brain's synchronized. Uh, same thing when people are all at a concert together listening to the same music, their brain's synchronized. Yeah. So people are having shared experiences in normal everyday waking consciousness. It's just, it's up to us to go ahead and make those bridges where you know it kind of it's an all-encompassing shared consciousness the concept of it all i don't know if you've read much about uh the researcher raymond moody but he's pretty much one of the most well-known researchers for not just studying near-death experiences in death but the shared near-death experience have you heard much about that concept no tell me so the shared near-death experience is where, let's say, you know, God forbid your, your grandma or your grandfather is in the hospital on their deathbed, ready to, you know, transition to the other side or what have you. And at the moment of their departure, uh, let's say you're bedside with them, you're holding their hand, you're looking at them. At the moment of, of death, they, they have their, their flat line and, you know, whatever happens there within the body and you as Gage as their grandson you actually leave your body and you see them leave their body and you might step into the realm of you know the godhead the psychedelic space the whatever have whatever you want to call it for a moment but you actually have overlap with their death experience and you can actually bring that back and you know that's there's been many cases of that that moody has reported on so i mean that's even another concept of of, of things like telepathy in which you know people can have shared experiences together in very uh strange manners and it seems as though there is some sort of field that connects people I don't know if it's a magnetic field. I don't know if it's that simple, right? Obviously, we have the bioelectric aspect of our physiology, and I don't know if it's as simple as uh, synchronization of our electrical body causes expansion of our magnetic field, which can influence others within that space. I don't know if it's that simple or if it's much more complex, like coupling with Earth's magnetic field 
and then our consciousness can basically travel wherever it needs to go once we're synchronized with the Earth's field. These are concepts that I've discussed with Bill Bankstein. He's one of the world's leading researchers in terms of uh, distant healing and things of that nature. He's the president of the Society of Scientific Exploration, and you know, he's trying to better understand the mechanisms because for whatever reason, it seems as though these abilities don't seem to dissipate with distance. And so that would pretty much cancel out the simplistic notion that it's simply magnetic-based because that dissipates with with uh, with distance. So, yeah, there's a lot to be discovered, a lot to be uncovered, a lot of stuff to reverse engineer. But you know, that's one of the reasons why I created the DMT Quest project because I feel as though these things are important, you know, not just to understand like straightforward telepathy but to understand why shared death experiences take place maybe the near-death experience is giving us a glimpse of not just altered neurochemistry leading to visionary experiences but maybe our consciousness doesn't have to you know live and die with the physical body maybe it's, it's much more complex and you know I, I think that better understanding these sort of topics and concepts can help humanity uh, live in a better manner because once we have less fear of death I feel like it allows us to live more fully hmm I wonder if like a lot of people try to bring up whether quantum physics has a role in consciousness um, the thing that would be interesting is if quantum uh, something like quantum entanglement or something where matter can kind of be in some sense kind of synchronized to the same state or something like that um i wonder if like let's say that that could happen in the brain and people might argue that it could be irrelevant but i wonder if if like if that exists then i wonder if mechanisms could evolve uh like in evolution based on uh those kind of mechanisms because like um maybe uh, and this is like so speculative for what it's worth but um but it's still interesting to kind of just wonder about um but that could be a way that because uh, you said it doesn't matter about distance uh, so that kind of sounds like quantum entanglement-ish kind of thing. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think you mentioned that, right? I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, there's there's probably something there. I wouldn't know how it all intertwines at all. <laughs> but yeah. there's so many layers, right? There, there's so much taking place. There's the neurochemistry layer. There's the electrophysiology layer. There's a quantum entanglement layer. It just depends which one you want to focus on obviously a, a comprehensive perspective looking at all of them and how they interact with each other would probably be ideal especially for topics that need to be very well presented to a skeptical public right yeah um so i wanted to ask what was it oh have you tried transcranial magnetic stimulation no, I haven't. It sounds like an interesting field of research and application. From what I understand, the the magnetic stimulation is fairly, it's pretty strong, right? It's it's not like a, a ultra weak magnetic field. Is is it a pretty robust 
signal that they're sending to you? Yeah, I don't know too much about the machines. I am I was mostly curious if you've ever had an experience with them. Um I have haven't. you? No, but there is one at my university and that would be I would be interested in doing it although it does sound kind of scary a little bit, but um yeah, no, I haven't tried it yet. Yeah. I mean, the Michael Persinger stuff, it's, I mean, the transcranial magnetic stimulation is different than the Persinger stuff, because... Have you read much about uh, Michael Persinger? No. Yeah, so Michael Persinger was a Canadian scientist that focused on ultra-weak rotating magnetic fields. He devised uh, a contraption known as the God Helmet, or the Kern Helmet. And basically, it was a helmet where he would place on your head, and people would have... Uh, mystical experiences and these were really weak magnetic fields like much weaker even than the earth's magnetic field from what i understand in the pico tesla range i believe so yeah i mean magnetic fields and their effects on consciousness and their effect on like neuroplasticity and things of nature is an extremely interesting field that i feel is very much understudied and you know, i wish Persinger was still around but he passed away a few years back Oh man, yeah. Hmm. So, what is uh, where do you th where are you taking this DMT quest project right now? And what uh, I noticed it says twenty twenty one, which is now. <laughs> so, uh, what uh, where is that going to go to? So we're going to be releasing the documentary shortly, probably within the next 10 days. Uh, like I said, outlining pretty much just uh, bringing the public up to date as to what's been going on in terms of DMT research the past, ever since DMT, the spirit molecule came out in 2010. And the trajectory from there is to help the scientists that are in this field uh, raise the necessary funds to carry out the research because... You know, DMT, the conversation regarding endogenous DMT has just been increasing in terms of interest, but the funding hasn't matched that interest, and people need these answers. So that's where I feel as though I need to take this, where it's really helping the researchers. I mean, it, I've corresponded with J.C. Calloway, who wrote a paper in 1988, I believe, hypothesizing that DMT and endogenous monamine oxidase inhibitors play a pivotal role in the dream state. And when I emailed him and asked him if he ever carried out the study, he stated that he hadn't because there was no funds and he had to go into a, a different field of research. So this is not a new thing in terms of endogenous DMT being an underfunded field of research. So you know, I'd like to focus on making sure that people like Jima Borjigin or John Dean or Nicholas Glynos or other researchers like E. Fresca that are interested in studying endogenous DMT and the effects and the circadian rhythm and whether it's upregulated during dream sleep and how it affects our altered states or even our normal waking states. They, they need that support. They need the world to know that, you know, this is an underfunded field and that needs to change. So I think that's, that's a starting point for DMT Quest. And I've also uh, partnered up with Bill Bankston from the Society of Scientific Exploration he has like 500 researchers he works with, and they're all cutting-edge science in terms of things that are considered outliers, 
uh, distant healing, psychokinesis, uh, bioelectricity, zero point stuff. I mean, it, it's all over the place. They have 500 researchers, like I stated. So I like to partner with them too because they're another underfunded field of, of scientific in inquiry. So what people need to realize is that popularity doesn't drive whether something is legitimately scientifically proven or not. What I believe drives drive something to be scientifically proven is the integrity of the research first and foremost, the integrity of the researcher and the replicability of those experiments no matter how big or small they are and that's what people need to realize so uh, that's pretty much my focus is to get the DMT researchers uh, get the public knowing that they need the funds, get the funds to them uh, develop more films regarding their research and then working with the periphery people like Bankston at the SSC and, and other people like that to go ahead and, and once again fund their research and, and build documentaries about the research that they're doing because this is all very world changing stuff I believe. I believe that there's a functionality towards altered states of consciousness and mysticism while it's great to have discussions of connecting with the divine or even ET beings or, or what have you there's also uh, a, a big potential for utilizing this stuff for optimizing healthcare and um, you know our emotional well-being, our spiritual well-being, and, and just the all-encompassing uh, aspect of it all. So, yeah, that that's basically where we're at right now. Nice. Um, so I'm thinking I've I've covered kind of. Seems like, uh, yeah, I think I've covered basically all the stuff that I had written down. I'm curious, do you have anything that you think I missed that I should, uh, or that you should tell everybody and tell me and all that? Uh, I think pretty much covered a lot of it. I mean, I would just encourage people, not necessarily to have an open mind, but just to go with their intuition about things, because... I feel like that's one of the subtle aspects of altered states that humans have learned to discard is their intuition, that, that gut feeling about something being real or something taking place or, or getting answers from, from different methods and just purely cerebral reading something, regurgitating it, waiting for it to be peer-reviewed or randomized control trials to just regurgitate the fact that something is real or something is not. I feel as though you have to take a, a holistic, all-encompassing perspective of something to come up with uh, you know, your own answers. And I would just encourage people to, to tap into their own intuition and their own logic and reasoning and stick with that regardless of, of what's being said around you. It doesn't necessarily mean to always go against the grain, you know, that's for sure, but you know, just to, to tap into their own intuition as much as possible. Yeah, I I like that you are this way. You are kind of, um, you are good at seeing kind of, uh, well, you basically get really into the details of different biological things, and yet you also have kind of these uh, more far-out ideas as well, and you kind of um, combine them. And, uh, I don't know, yeah, there's usually, like, this kind of range where people are either super skeptical or super, uh, 
just uh, maybe purely intuitive? Ungra- I don't know what to call it. Uh, ungrounded. <laughs> yeah, right. And um, yeah, I'm kind of, I my interests are kind of like in a different uh, realm, maybe, in terms of when things get weirder. Um, like, I don't know. I'm not sure what to believe about tele- telepathy, but I do think it could be possible. But but I do think I also have certain... Like, I, I am very skeptical about science, for example. And I think that... Like, I, I feel that too much of what society has become is just these kind of... It's just like this organized systems of people kind of submitting to experts on whatever topic and people don't really like when somebody thinks outside of that and uh but but it's kind of weird because the the people at the top who are maybe these supposed experts uh they they have this following that is uh, it's basically religion in my opinion where it's policed by um like if you don't conform to it uh you are rejected or mocked or attacked or whatever it is and um i don't know like like i'm not sure how to feel about it like i feel like part of the problem is that if everybody was just free to think uh maybe there would be no organized society or something um (laughs) but at the same time uh it feels like so many people are forced to just kind of believe things without actually uh it's like like definitely the people who are following the experts are not experts on that thing just by following the expert right so like um i don't know it's yeah no, I, I definitely see what you're saying. I mean, if, if anything was if anything was an example of what you're talking about, I mean, just look at this past year, 2020, and now 2021, yeah. you know, it's it's been this whole, whole, like, like very, it's like a mantra, like, listen to the experts, trust the science, like, over and over and over, and, you know, people don't realize that there's a lot of talented minds utilizing science that have completely different perspectives based on the information the high quality information that they're looking at yeah so like i said once again you know science is not a popularity not based on popularity but it it has become that based on you know media driven narratives but like i said it doesn't mean that you just go against the grain to go against the grain but to use your own wits about you that that's extremely important that's uh, i think an important part of being a human yeah, totally, yeah. So, um, I think uh, this is probably where we will end. Um, I want to thank you for coming on. This has been an interesting conversation. Um, and I like this project that you're doing, the DMT Quest. I think it is a good idea. Thank you. No, I really appreciate you having me on. You know, this is the first time that we acted, we interacted over audio, and I'd come back and do it again anytime. I think that your perspective is great. I think that the concepts that you write about is very much needed, especially from somebody coming from the angle that you are, which is asking a lot of questions, not claiming to be an expert, but just 
putting together a well-researched uh, hypothesis and ideas. And I think that's what we need more of. I think it's extremely important. So, yeah, just thanks for having me on, and I look forward to listening to more of your podcast with other guests in the future. Yeah, thanks uh, for coming on, too. Uh, see you later. All right, take care.